Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and from across the Living Faith Fellowship of Churches. Each week when we come together, we're having conversations that, that run the gamut from theology to ministry leadership to church history. And uh, every time we come on the show, we want to introduce you to a guest that has insight into one of those particular areas of topic. And, and so this week, we have a very special guest, Dr. Leighton Flowers, Director of Evangelism for Texas Baptists and Professor at Trinity Theological Seminary. Uh, Leighton is also an author and host of the podcast Soteriology 101, which many of you may be familiar with. Uh, Leighton has become known over the last few years as one of the leading voices in opposition to Calvinism. And uh, on his show, he's taken great care to respectfully counter the arguments of many of today's leading Calvinists, uh, who we know are very vocal and producing lots of content. So, he's, so he stays very busy. Uh, but he has been kind enough to join us today to introduce us to the importance of this topic and, and to help us unpack some of the major issues with a Calvinistic view of God. And so with that, I want to welcome Leighton to the show. Welcome in. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. It's it's really good to have you. Um, you know, a couple years ago, a, a buddy of mine told me about your show. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been listening pretty faithfully. And in fact, I got a text yesterday from from one of the young women in our ministry here saying that uh, you responded to one of her, her questions on the show. She was incredibly excited. So I think there's a lot of fans yeah. in our sphere. <laughs> Well, thank you for saying that. It's very, very kind of you. Usually when we have a new guest on the show, we want to start with just discussing how they came to know Christ and, and the journey that God's led them on to get them to the point that they're at. And I think, I think that's a really pertinent question for you. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your testimony of salvation, discipleship, uh, training, and, and how you got to a place of ministry that you're in now? Sure. I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my, my, in fact, my father was the youth pastor at the church that I grew up in, and my mother was the school nurse. So they had me kind of covered on both sides. And uh, both of my parents still living today and still good friends and mentors and uh, uh, examples for me in life. And I, I, I love the fact that I was raised in a Christian home, a little bit of a church brat, you might say, as, as mm. they say, you know, I used to have a drug problem. I was drugged to church three times a week. Uh, right, so, yeah. um, I, I'm one of those kinds of, uh, you know, uh, born on the front pew kind of Christians. And, uh, and so one of the things I dealt with, I guess, struggled with the most was, you know, kind of struggling with doubting salvation, because when it's something you're raised believing, it's kind of like saying, you know, when, when did you come to know Jesus as your Lord? That's like asking, when did you come to know that your mom was your mom or your dad was your dad? I mean, right. I, yeah. I, I literally had John three sixteen memorized before I could, I could spell my first name. I mean, I've, I've always, uh, been taught and believed these truths for as long as I can remember. Um, and so you know, kind of making your faith your own was a part of my journey uh, and going through that process as, as I matured into an adult. Uh, and then I guess close to my senior year in high school, I went through the Experiencing God with Henry Blackaby, that, that study, mm -hmm. and really felt an impression uh, to, to go into ministry. I, I, you know, I, it kind of dawned on me. Uh, I, I didn't know this quote at the time, but the C.S. Lewis quote, which I'm paraphrasing, something to the the effect of, you know, Christianity. If it's it's false, it's of no importance. If it's true, mm -hmm. it's of uh, infinite importance. What it cannot mm -hmm. be is just moderately important. Right. And so, if if what we're believing and what we're saying is true, then what better 
uh, purpose and value to dedicate my life to than to the spreading of the gospel and to talking about our Savior. Hmm. And so I, I really felt compelled to make it my life's work to be in ministry, uh, even at that young age. And never never thought I would work for Texas Baptist. Uh, my dad ended up actually working for Texas Baptist for years, and uh, that's hmm. how I was introduced to the denomination. And the work was super summer, and uh, my dad helped to start See You at the Pole. Many of you may know that, the prayer oh, yeah. ministry that's wow. around, around the country. He's the one uh, who was happened to be that God used to, to get that going. Cool. And, and so uh, I ended up succeeding him in that position. That doesn't usually happen where it passes from father to son. It just happened that I worked with his boss, and, and one thing led to another, and I was filling in for him a lot as he was having some health issues. And so... I ended up taking that position and um, uh, from a local church, I was a local church youth pastor and ended up moving to the state denomination. And just back in 2018, I was uh, moved to the director over the evangelism team and uh, and uh, over uh, evangelism and apologetics. And, and I love that. Uh, mm. I love doing that. And so, um, you know, my, my, my salvation story is a kind of a lifelong one. I, I know I was baptized at the age of seven. Um, came to fruition, uh, came to maturation and understanding of that throughout my my high school years, really understanding what Christ did for me. And then then later, uh, many more ups and downs in my journey that would be too long for us to go through. But sure. um, God, God has been good. Now you did training, obviously, when you got called to the ministry, you did what most young people know to do, and that's to go to seminary. And, and uh, you had a very strong Calvinistic, from what I understand, a very strong Calvinistic influence at that time that caused you to adopt that soteriological view. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. you can explain that a little bit and tell us how, you know, you got to a place where you were, you were willing to challenge right. that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was raised, my, both my parents, neither one of them are Calvinistic at all. Um, in fact, they were kind of concerned when I became one. Um, my, myself and my older brother, uh, along with our families, kind of adopted that way of thinking, and they, the, neither one of them were persuaded by it, and uh, they, they did a really good job not allowing it to divide our family. Though they didn't make it a, a major point of uh, you know distinction or uh, interruption in our fellowship. So I, I commend them now for their maturity mm. in handling that situation. But our church split our home church where we all grew up, and going with my family end up splitting over the issue. And of course, my parents mm. are kind of caught in the middle, and they ended up just going to a neutral different location. And it was, it was pretty heart wrenching. Um, wow. you know, me and my older brother and our families, their grandchildren, you know, who are a part of those families, um, are, are, uh, teaching and believing Calvinistically and they don't believe that way. And so it was, it was, you can see why it might be such a, a heart issue for me, because when I came into Calvinism as a 19 year old, I was, you know, quite confident I was right about it. Obviously, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have. Sure. And I, and I kind of felt like I was standing, I really felt I was standing for the truth of the gospel. And I, and I felt like our churches had kind of let us down by not teaching us these age-old doctrines of grace, as we would call, yeah. them, we would call them. And and uh, and so I was introduced to it when I went to Hardin-Simmons University there in Abilene by a mentor uh, who is still a good friend of mine. Uh, he's, as far as I know, still Calvinistic. And so uh, I love this brother. Uh, he is such a great man of God. He was one of those kinds of mentors that would make you feel like the most important person uh, in the world when you were with him. And he's still like that. He just has that kind of charisma mm. and that kind of ability to really uh, value people and to love people. And he has helped more people than 
than I could count uh, just with his ability to mentor. But he happened to be a Calvinist. Um, and he gave me a book by John MacArthur. And uh, when I was on a mission trip uh, in Belarus, Russia, it was right when the Iron Curtain had come down back yeah. in the day and the doors were open for people to come into the schools. Ironically, we couldn't go into American schools at the time, but we could go into Russian schools yeah. and give out Bibles and preach the gospel. And we were doing that there in Belarus. And in the evenings, I would read from the book uh, titled Ashamed of the Gospel by John MacArthur. And it introduced me to the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinistic sociology, uh, their view of predestination and election. I'd never really studied those doctrines before. And so I had no real background um, to compare them with. Uh, it was just the first time I'd really studied Romans 9 or seen Ephesians 1. And I was being taught from a very articulate you know, preacher like MacArthur that this is the way I should understand it. And then once I adopted it, I just became, I kind of became a little bit of a, a kind of a missionary for Calvinist because I, I was just, it's like funny said, how that works. Little, yeah. I was, I was upset. Yeah. They, they weren't telling us about this. Why, why are they mm -hmm. keeping the secret? You know, why aren't, why aren't people talking about this? And so I, I began to try to convert more and more people and converted quite a few. In fact, as a later a college minister, I had a lot of students there at, uh, at Hardin Simmons that were part of the college ministry that I directed. And I, I, brought up this topic quite regularly and uh, mm. we we dove deep into the doctrines of predestination and election and all those kinds of things and so uh that was kind of part of my journey i held on to calvinism for a good 10 years all throughout my 20s uh about when i was getting close to 30 around that range it's like a three-year process of kind of kind of slowly deconstructing out of the calvinistic way of thinking mm -hmm. but it just came through personal study it, it, it kind of was initiated by a book I was reading about A.W. Tozer, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, I believe it is, uh, mm -hmm. something on the holiness of God. And he just said some things in there that just didn't fit the Calvinistic paradigm. And I thought he was a Calvinist because Piper quoted from him so often. And John Piper was a you know influence, a huge influence on me by this time. Um, and and so I just assumed Tozer was one of us, you know, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when he was saying some things that didn't fit the Calvinist paradigm, I began to kind of search up. And actually found Tozer sermons against Calvinism. Uh, and I was really shocked and I just totally lost respect for Tozer. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's a, this, and I, I thought real poorly of him. He's not very deep. Hmm. He you know, means well, but he's just not very good theologian. And, and, uh, and so I put his book down and just kind of put it away. And the same kind of thing happened to me when I hit with C.S. Lewis. Just a huge amount of respect for him. Thought he was Calvinistic because all the Calvinists quoted him all the time and learned that he actually spoke out against Calvinism. And I, I just began to really kind of itch, you know, inside of me, like why would these very smart people who have a high view of scripture, they're theologians, they're not the, you know, the Joe Osteen types that are just trying to, mm -hmm. you know, you stay on the surface and keep everything, health, right. wealth and prosperity kind of stuff. Now these guys are deep thinkers that think seriously about the scriptures, apologists and, and uh, exegetical preachers. And in my mind, all the good exegetes, all the deep thinkers, they were the Calvinists. And so these two guys didn't fit that. And I had a lot of respect for them before I found out they didn't, you know, accept Calvinism. And it, and it just kind of came through my own background being a, a, in debate. I debated in high school and college and it just taking on the other side of an issue. And so for the very first time, I kind of decided I was going to do that. I was going to go learn from the other scholars. And so I picked up Jacobus Arminius and started reading his stuff which he sounds like a Calvinist. If you've never read Jacobus Arminius' right. stuff, he sounds very Calvinistic. It's really crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and I just started reading some of the best of the best scholars from the other side. 
and they were nothing like I was told they were. In other words, the the echo chamber of Calvinist had told me so many things about Armenians that I thought I was going to get the Joe Olstein level of Christianity, and I, I got right. anything but that. I got very in-depth, robust arguments from their perspective that really challenged my Calvinism uh, to the point where eventually, like I said, over the course of uh, a couple of years, two or three years, I slowly began to drop point after point of the, the Calvinistic tulip, so to speak. Was there a lot of fallout in terms of the relationships you'd established over the last decade or all the things you taught? Was, did you feel a compulsion to go back and to revisit those relationships and those conversations that you'd had for, for the previous years? Yeah, the one, one in particular, my pastor, uh, the church that split, um, I, I apologize to him, you know, in person. Uh, he had retired by that time, but, you know, I— he, he, he went through a lot of emotional turmoil. He was not a Calvinist, and he spoke out against the Calvinism that was rising up in his church, and I was one of those people helping to try to promote Calvinism in his church at the time. And uh, and we had personal talks about it in his office, and, and uh, I mean, he, he's, he was a mentor to me. He was a great man of God, and I hurt him uh, because of my beliefs. And I, I honestly did that because I thought I was standing for truth, mm-hmm. and I really was trying to—, to, to push him to adopt truth. And so I had good motivations, but I, I hurt him and I hurt the church. And I had, I felt like I, I wrote him like a three page handwritten letter apologizing. And then I went and saw him too. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's, he's still a good, he's retired and a great friend of mine. I saw him in fact, just a few weeks ago at one of the associational meetings and we embraced and he's just, he's just a great man of God. But that was one, one significant relationship. There are several others. My, my roommate in college, Chad, uh, he was one of the few guys that was my age I could not convince to become a Calvinist. And he just kept pushing back. He never had really good arguments against me. He just like, nah, that just doesn't fret. That's just not right. <laughs> I don't know what to say to you, Layton, but that's just not right. You know? Yeah. Kind of right. Uh, and so he, he often, we often still have meals together or see each other once in a while. And he's, he's, he's quick to say, I told you so. I told you so. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you did. Do you think that Soteriology 101 is kind of your platform for that? Like, tell me the motivation of starting the podcast, because it's a huge endeavor. It takes yeah. so much of your time and energy, certainly. When I get on your podcast, I just, I'm scrolling for days. So I know, I know that it's been a ton of energy and, and, and work that's been put into this. What's the motivation? Some of that's Caleb. Uh, Caleb will take our hour-long video sometimes, and he'll produce a little segment out of it, like a little five-minute short. Right. We call them shorts. And so some of those videos you're scrolling through, are duplicated content in, in shorts. And so, mm. uh, but, but uh, yes, the, the motivation, uh, back in 2014, I was in the midst of my dissertation writing on the topic of sociology. That's just what I, I wrote on for my dissertation at New Orleans for my, my uh, doctoral work. And, and I was also teaching as an adjunct at Dallas Baptist University. Uh, I was teaching just a basic theology course. And we'd come to the section on sociology. And so I started teaching Calvinism and then what I was, you know, uh, believing and what, what my, my views were more of a traditional Southern Baptist sociology that was not Calvinistic, more whosoever will, maybe it was what I would call it a whosoever will mm-hmm. theology. Um, and the, ca- the, the, the class just kind of lit up with questions and comments and debates going on. And so much so that we were having a dual, it was a dual course where you'd meet online, uh, one day a week and then, uh, you know, uh, in person another day. And so there was online lectures. And so I I finally had to cut the students off and say, guys, we've got other content we got to get to. We can't talk about this all the time. We can't keep, you know, rehashing Mm -hmm. this. And 
And so I said, I'll tell you what, I will record on the the webinar, I'll record some shows, uh, some some broadcasts that that cover my material that I'm going through right now with my dissertation. It'll help me work through it. And then if you want to, you know, engage there, you can. Mm. It was interesting. You could see the number of people and who they are that actually watch, you know, each one of your webinars. Because as a teacher, you got to hold them accountable. They have to actually watch it. Well, this was not required. They didn't have to watch it because it was extra. But all but one of the students had watched the entire video. And it had dozens and dozens of more comments than any of my other presentations. And I was like, there's something here. There are people who are very interested in this topic, obviously. Yeah. And one of the students had actually said, hey, you should put this content that I'd put onto a podcast. And I was like, what's that? You know, at the time, I didn't yeah. know how to do podcasting or anything like that. And so uh, that that one thing led to another where I got on YouTube and started learning how to do Lipson and recording to iTunes. And I honestly, when I put it up there, that's why I called Sociology 101, because that was the name of that course that I did. Right. That, that's what I titled it for that DBU course was Sociology 1. This is the basics of sociology, the basics of the doctrines of salvation. And so that's why I use that title. I don't. I, I think if I was starting this with the intent to become what it is, I might have come with a different name or try to be more, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it, but it just kind of organically happened over time. Yeah. I, I appreciate the fact that it's a declaration that it's about soteriology. Like I, I it's it is such a straightforward name, and uh, it could it could be misleading, you know, to somebody who's finding the podcast or stumbling upon it. But but I do think it goes back to the idea that this is a conversation about salvation and and whether or not right. whether or not people are even able to receive uh, the grace of Jesus Christ uh, through faith. And and so right. I, I actually appreciate the title. So Soteriology 101 well, is, is... And it, I also just say the reason, the, one of the reasons I, I started its own page, um, in other words, it has its own Facebook page, it has its mm -hmm. own Twitter page, and it's not just combined with me and everything that I do, is that because this subject is so controversial, um, it overwhelms any other topic. And so I, I honestly just didn't want to bring it into the evangelism stuff that I, that's my full-time job. You know, I'm usually mm -hmm. training on evangelism and evangelism uh, conferences and apologetic conferences. I didn't want the Calvinism in-house debate over Calvinism to override and and kind of push out all the more important things that we were doing. So that was one of the reasons I intentionally kept it over here. Now, right. the downside of that is that people get to know that and only that and they think well this is all latent never does and it's actually one of the 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 it's one of the least amount of time i spend each week is on that compared right. to what i spend on my my life and, and my ministry and you know i've got four kids you know what beautiful wife i've got a family here i teach at church regularly i you know do like i said the evangelism director for texas baptist i mean this is a side gig in a sense it's just something mm -hmm. i've done on the side because it's i felt like it was scratching an itch that needed to be scratched you know there's yeah. a lot of calvinists out there promoting calvinism and very few uh non-calvinists uh what i've called provisionists uh promoting promoting this concept and idea and really from an exegetical standpoint explaining why we believe this passage doesn't say what you think it does calvinist and right. and that's why that's why the, the program i think has been somewhat successful well we uh we appreciate your passion project um we're, we're really thankful for it because we do think there is a lack of a voice uh, on this topic and, and hopefully we'll get to address that later on in, in the interview but uh, I, I would like to start by laying the foundation of the topic that I want to address with you today, and that is really just introducing what is Calvinism to our listeners, because we've got 
we've got students and listeners that are going to be very familiar with this subject, but we also have listeners that, that uh, listen from a much more devotional approach who could really mm. benefit from getting a groundwork of, of what this even is. What is this topic? Sure. What, what does it mean? So do you mind starting by just describing uh, Calvinism a, as a theology sure. itself? Yeah, and I'll start by saying I think it's only fair to learn Calvinism from an actual Calvinist. So something like R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, is a good primer if you want to kind of get a picture from an actual Calvinist. And and I do get a lot of accusations from Calvinists. Yeah, you don't understand Calvinism or you're not representing us correctly. And that's one of the reasons on the show I usually read straight from Calvinist sources. I let Calvinists speak for themselves because that's the best way I know how to represent them. Um, and, and sometimes that accusation of misrepresentation comes because you're, you're a different kind of Calvinist than maybe the Calvinist that I'm confronting that particular episode. Or right. the way that I'm wording it is not an exact vernacular. You would want it to be worded. It sounds more palatable to you um, and those kinds of things. And I get that. Um, but I, I have described and kind of walked through Tulip thousands of times. And I've had Calvinists in the room with me. And I've asked them, was I fair? And I can't think of a single time when I've done this in a live setting where the Calvinist in the room that I asked said, no, I, I think you were unfair or you were wrong in your representation. So I, I just premised that by saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we jump into this, you know, realize Calvinism is not a monolithic group. There are going to be different kinds of Calvinists. Some like different vernacular than others. They pick different wording. Right. And so you can't fully represent the entire system or the way of thinking in, in a short amount of time. So keep that in mind as, as we kind of unpack TULIP, which is the acrostic that's become well-known for describing mm-hmm. the five points of Calvinism that are uniquely Calvinistic. In other words, these are points of contention that uh, have been brought against the Calvinistic doctrines. One's, uh, the T stands for TULIP, which is total depravity, which R.C. Sproul and other leading Calvinists also refer to as total inability. And they're talking mm-hmm. about a moral inability when they say that. So what they're saying is, that we're dead like Lazarus in the grave. We're born in the, with a spiritual deadness. And because of that, that condition, even when the gospel comes, we can't respond positively to that gospel. We will hate it. We will always reject the things of God. We will not want to accept the things of God. So it's, they'll, they'll say that's your free will because you're, you're acting in accordance with your nature, which is dead and, mm-hmm. and depraved. And so you always will hate the things of God because of the very way that you're born due to the fall of Adam. So when Adam fell, everybody fell into this uh, hardened, dead, sinful, depraved condition from birth. And you're hopeless and you're helpless in that condition. You cannot do anything but hate God because that's what you want to do. So it's not like God, mm-hmm. it's not like God is, in their view, it's not like God's forcing them to hate him or forcing them like through physical means, tying them up and saying they can't come. It's, it's that their very heart condition is so corrupted that they, they will always say no to the gospel unless something dramatically changes. Something has to intervene and change their very ontological nature from birth because they are born in this totally depraved, uh, God-hating, gospel-rejecting posture that will never accept the things of God. Right. The U stands for unconditional election. And this is the concept and idea that before the foundation of the world, God unilaterally picks some people to save. He, and he's going to change that very nature that they're born with and, and cause them to believe. And that gets into some points 
that come to up later, but yeah. it's the choice of God. And it's a it's an unconditional choice means it's not based upon God seeing what the person will do, seeing that the person will believe, or knowing in advance that this person's going to make the right choice. So it's not based upon anything else except the will of the Father. Um, the arbiter, if you will. That's one one mm-hmm. of the reasons that I think Jonathan Edwards and even Calvin called it an arbitrary choice of God. And they don't mean it in the negative whimsical sense. They mean it in the sense that the arbiter is the, uh, he, he is God and he can do what he wants to. Who are you to question if God wants to choose one person and cause them to believe and not another? And, you know, you can't talk to back to God. And so that's that's the you unconditional election. Limited atonement is simply saying it's it's particular. The, the atonement is for the elect. So he's not right. going to send Jesus to die for everybody. He's going to send Jesus to die for those he's chosen. And so it's just kind of a, it, it, that's a less of a biblical position as it is a logical position. And that, right. that's my estimation. Some Calvinists would push back on that. But there are a lot of four-point Calvinists even who who deny limited atonement because it's it's a doctrine in search of a, a text, as yeah. Dr. David Allen likes to say. There's mm-hmm. just not a lot of support for the L, which is one of the reasons that even a lot of reformed people deny the L of limited atonement, uh, which talks right. about Jesus dying not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. First John. And limited two. atonement is, is feels like a, a slap in the face, you know, like you're, de- you're depraved and uh, there's no hope of salvation. And by the way, you yeah. aren't chosen and Oh yeah. To boot that Christ wasn't even thinking about you when he, when he came yeah. and, and gave his life. Well, and even, even statements from Dort, uh, and that's historically, you know, where this kind of debate came to, to yeah, head. The Synod, the synod the of Dort. The Synod of Dort, yeah. Where they even, there's a there's a quote there that no one perishes for want of atonement. Um, and they're trying to address this issue that that the concept and idea that, that Christ only died for, so, you know, so much for so many. He only suffered so much for so many. That, that this kind of commercialized view of atonement. Um, mm-hmm. they, they were even stepping out against that because that was a more extreme version um, and so men like John Piper actually, uh, you know, following John Owen have really popularized the more limited perspective of atonement. And I recommend highly, uh, Dr. David Allen's work on that subject on the atonement. He's written, uh, like an 800 plus page book going through. And most of the, most of the book is quotes from actually Calvinistic reformed theologians defending the concept of, of the idea that Christ died for the sins of the world versus uh, the sins of just the elect. Yeah, it's it's um, a great book. I, I actually picked that book up um, after he was on your show uh, a month or two ago. It's, it is a fantastic yeah. book. So yeah, tell us about ir- Irresistible Grace. Yeah, Irresistible Grace, uh, sometimes called effectual calling. This is the idea that because you're born dead, the T of total depravity, uh, dead people can't believe. And so what, what has to happen? Something has to fix that. Well, for those he's unconditionally elected and atoned for, those are the ones he's going to wake up. He's going to bring them out of their, their tomb. He's going to regenerate them. Um, this is what R.C. Sproul refers to it as, where you're, you're, it's called pre-faith regeneration. So you're born again, you're regenerated so as to cause you to believe. So faith is actually a fruit of regeneration. Whereas typically, what what we and other you know Christians have said over the course of human history is that you're born again because you believe. In other words, mm-hmm. faith is what is the means by which you're made alive, uh, as Colossians two twelve says. You're you're made alive through faith. You're brought to life, ra- raised to new life through faith. Not that you're raised to life unto faith. 
Um, John 20, 31 says that these things were written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. So in the order, I think, in Scripture over and over again is that you believe so as to have life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. He didn't say, I refuse to give you life so that you would certainly come to me. He puts the, the responsibility on them. So yes, you could say you're spiritually dead and that you're separated like the prodigal son was said to be lost, but now he's found, dead, now he's alive, because that's the idiomatic use of deadness. You're, out, you're cast out of the garden. You're spiritually dead, meaning you're separated due to your rebellion. Well, what's the solution to that? To draw near, to be reconciled. And you do that through faith. So it's by believing that we are reconciled and made alive, not that we're arbitrarily or unilaterally just made alive so that we would certainly believe, which is the Calvinistic mm -hmm. order. And mm -hmm. so that's where we would push back on the Calvinists. We just think they're ordo salutis, the order of salvation. It has the cart before the horse. Right. They put rebirth prior to faith, whereas we say faith is the instrumental means by which we were born. And we believe scripture obviously supports our, our perspective on that. Uh, and then the P stands for the perseverance of the saints, which even Calvinists will say, obvious, obviously, well, that's more of the perseverance of God. God perseveres. God, if he has he is, uh, regenerated you, then you'll stay regenerated. You know, you're going to uh, endure because if he picked you, then he's obviously going to hold on to you. And um, and, and there, gets, there gets to be a little bit of situation there because there's the... Effinvescent grace, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, of Calvin, where he'll explain, you know, why there are some people who appear to have the grace of God, but really are reprobates, the non-elect, and um, so he comes up with this this view of effinvescent grace, which is this this grace that gives you um, in enough knowledge and understanding to be able to to at least temporarily express your faith in God, but it's it's not genuine, it's not real. Um, yeah. and, and different Calvinists take different positions on how they would explain that. But the perseverance of the saints is just pretty much the concept and idea that if you've been picked, if you were chosen, you will certainly be redeemed. And therefore, you would never leave the faith if, you truly, uh, if you're truly a believer, if you're truly born again. Then, then that's going to be something that will uh, be exhibited in the fruit of uh, perseverance. So, you know, I've always thought of perseverance of the saints as, as being kind of a, a mutated view uh, of eternal security. You know, it seems like a rebuttal to Arminius in many regards, but, um, yeah. but the, the idea that, that, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved, but it is, has, again, it's just putting the emphasis back on the unconditional uh, election aspect of God's relationship to our salvation. Right. Yeah, and there there are many, you know, within especially the Southern Baptist tradition, like myself, and myself included, who support the concept of eternal security because we do believe that new life begins at the point of regeneration, and that that once God comes to indwell uh, by His Spirit within us, that He's not going to abandon us, um, and and therefore, um, you know, we can have similar arguments to that of the Calvinist as to the perseverance mm -hmm. or why someone would persevere. But I think it's a it's a, a much different foundation than the Calvinistic yes. perspective of eternal yeah. security, um, because it's it's uh, obviously we still believe in regeneration. In other words, uh, just the Calvinist believes in regeneration too. We just believe in a different order of regeneration. Right. We still believe yeah. that the the effect of regeneration is uh, is effectual in the sense that it it accomplishes its purpose. Um, yeah. and, and I even push back against some of my friends who are Arminian or are more classical Arminian in the sense that they do believe that, that one can 
abandon the faith, in other words, genuinely be born again and then stop being born again through leaving, uh, through leaving mm-hmm. or abandoning the faith. And, I, and I'll have discussions with them. I said, well, you do believe there is a point of no return, so to speak, in that glorification process. Because most Arminians will say you won't, there will be nobody who apostatizes in heaven uh, or you know, abandons the faith in heaven. Um, and, and I say, well, so I just believe that transition, that change happens at new birth, not at glorification. So we mm. both believe the same concept is happening. We just believe it may be, be happening at different times. But that, that's another point that I'm a little bit agnostic on just simply because for all practical purposes, it doesn't make a difference because we don't know the heart of any individual. So when it comes to any individual, it's one of three right. things. Either they're a backslidden Christian. In other words, there's somebody who's struggling. Maybe they had a, a tragic loss in their family and they're denying Christ, but really they're still a Christian and they're going through a stage. They're going through a bad time and they'll, they'll come back around. Either that's what's happening with them and we don't know it. Um, or they are a, a false convert. They, they who went out from us were never really of us. And that's a, a, that's a potential even among Armenians, that that's one of the options. And we don't know if that's the case. We right. can't see their heart. It's like the old preacher used to say, we can see the fruit, but we can't see the root. And God mm-hmm. can see the root, uh, and we can't. So he knows the heart condition. Well, the classical Arminian just adds that third one, that m- maybe they've truly apostatized. They were born again, but now they're not born again. Um, and, and so they have three options. I only have two options and whether you have two or three, you still don't know which one is which, and you're going to approach all three of those people, no matter what they are, the exact same way. You're going to call them to repentance and reconciliation because you can't possibly know the condition of their heart. And so that's one of the reasons I don't make it a huge point of division. I've got several people who follow the podcast who don't like that. I believe that and have issues with me believing that I get it. I understand. Uh, I can see some of the value in the other position as well. I see some of the good arguments from that position, but that's just that's just what I'm convinced by uh, mm-hmm. as I understand the scriptures at least today. And so, uh, I'm going to try to be as faithful to the the reading of the scripture as I know how to be. So uh, clearly, uh, you're not Calvinistic. We are not Calvinistic in our theology and our view of salvation in particular. Uh, we're not Arminian. We don't fit in that camp. Uh, but you know what we tend to, to believe as it concerns God's salvation, His grace uh, uh, has uh, been often referred to as a traditionalist view. You prefer the term provisionist, um, which was a term that I was introduced to th- really through your show. I hadn't heard that term a whole lot. Would you explain to us just briefly? I mean, you've already hit on it in your in your some of your arguments and, and your critical feedback about Tulip, but. Would you explain yeah. to us what you mean when you say provisionist? It's it, I really wasn't trying to create another ism. <laughs> you know, it's the last thing we probably need. But like you said, the Armenian label didn't really fit us as Southern Baptists. Um, some people were calling us traditional, you know, traditional Southern Baptists. But, you know, I think Calvinists could make a good argument that a lot of the tradition had Calvinists in it, too. And so it it. it some Calvinists were kind of upset when we would try to use the term traditional. And, you know, are we talking about the traditional church, the first 400 years of the Christian church? Because they believed more like we do sociologically than, than, uh, than Calvinism. Uh, and so, you know, even, even the title of my book, the Potter's promise, you know, it even has kind of as the, mm-hmm. you know, underpinning there, a biblical defense of a traditional sociology, because I wasn't using the term provisionist at the time. Um, and, 
it was more of just a desire to say, you know, I, I don't like labels, but I, I want to focus on God's provision. Y- yes, there are dead, spiritually dead sinners, but God provides for spiritually dead sinners. You know, all the things you want to say, you can say all these bad things about how worm-like people are, but yeah, but God provides for them. Mm-hmm. There's there's nobody that, that can say in hell, I, I'm here because God didn't provide. Um and and that's that's what provisionism is all about is that that God provides and yeah. He provides for everyone and therefore you're blameworthy. If if you end up in hell, it's you're to blame, not God. It's not because you were born like that; and you couldn't help it. Which is a big excuse that a lot of people in our culture use today for their choices to sin. Is that's just the way I was born? I can't help it. Well, if Calvinism is true, at least at the root of their doctrine, you have to kind of agree with that excuse. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah, you were born like that, and you could not help it. Uh, in fact, you could only desire that way of life and uh, rejecting the gospel and the truth of God. And, um, and, but you're still to blame mysteriously is kind of the, the whole Calvinistic thing is, is they don't know really why people are to blame. They just say they are. And, mm. and you shouldn't question why they are to blame. You're just supposed to still blame them for something they absolutely have no control over. And we're saying, no, I don't think that's a biblical concept. I think <laughs> they really do have control. They have the ability to repent of their sin. They have the ability to admit their enslavement. And so you say, yeah. well, people are enslaved to sin, they'll say. Yeah, I agree, but slaves can confess they're enslaved and, and right. receive the help when it's offered. Uh, but they're dead, yes, but people can, but dead people can trust in the life-giving truth so as to be made alive, according to the scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I don't try to fight a lot of the Calvinist positive claims. I just try to help them to see from a different perspective to say, yes, but God provides for those worm-like dead slaved sinners. And he does so sufficiently. And therefore yeah. they're blameworthy for their yeah. continuation into rebellion and sin. And so that's what provisionism is really all about is God provides for every single man, woman, boy, and girl. There's nobody that Jesus did not atone for. There is nobody that God does not love. There's nobody that he created for damnation. Uh, he desires the salvation of each and every individual. And that, that's really the focus of, yeah. of provisionism. Let's take a moment right here to hear from Pastor Mike Renault of Living Faith Boston. Hi, I'm Mike Renault, pastor at Living Faith in Boston, Massachusetts. And if you're considering learning the Word of God, Living Faith Bible Institute would be a good place for you. The good thing about LFBI is that you're not just learning from an academic standpoint. You're learning from actual practitioners that do in fact know the book. These are pastors and men who are leading churches, doing the work themselves, since they can give you a firsthand real life knowledge of what it means to learn the Bible in that context. Some of you may have a call in your life for the pastorate uh, to be a missionary, to serve the Lord in other parts of the world. Living Faith Bible Institute can prepare you in a way that you can be equipped with the Word of God and given practical tools, being held accountable in your ministry right where you're at. If you're interested in learning more or you want to enroll in LFBI, go to lfbi.org. One of the things I want to get into uh, now, because I think you did a really great job of summarizing what is a very, very uh, in-depth topic uh, in, in such a short period of time. But I do want to get to the issue of, of how the Calvinist arrives at these conclusions, because clearly there's something sourced in their hermeneutic that leads them to divide Scripture or, or not, 
in such a way uh, that results in these conclusions. And so can, can you explain to us some of the underpin, underpinnings involved in the Calvinist hermeneutic that causes them to, to come to this place? Yeah, I, and I can't speak for every every Calvinist, obviously, sure. like, I, like I mentioned before, it's not a monolithic group. And so different Calvinists are going to come to different conclusions based upon their you know, own education, upbringing. Um, but there are some presuppositions, I think, that are in play. And, and both sides have their presuppositions. I, I admit that. Um, being aware of your presuppositions and being willing to objectively uh, evaluate them is what's important. And, and some people... Uh, maybe not have not reached the maturity level to be able to do that from either perspective. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is one of the reasons that I'll often talk about the matter of fact, I have the book right over here. Somebody sent me a listener, sent me this, uh, the, the duck and rabbit, the duck rabbit book, because, um, I, I use this as an illustration oftentimes in my, in my podcast to say, you know, it's like, it's one picture. It's both a duck and a rabbit. And if you were raised believing it's a rabbit, it just looks like Paul is describing a rabbit in Romans 9, for example. It's mm-hmm. just obviously a rabbit, no other thing about it. And it's not until you you shift your way of seeing and thinking and think, oh, I see the duck now. Yeah. I, I can see that he could have been describing a duck, and I thought he was describing a rabbit. Now, I'm not being a relativist here and saying it's all relative. He was actually describing both. Um, I, I think he was describing one or the other. Uh, I think they're mutually exclusive claims within the claims of Arminians and provisionists and Calvinists and all the different groups. Um, and so I'm not trying to say both are right and they they just need to, you know, truth is relative, you know, as long as you adopt your truth. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying right. is, is your perception can be that Paul could only be describing a rabbit. And I don't even know what the duck would look like because I'm not even going to examine it. And what I'm saying is back away long enough, take off your prescription lenses, so to speak, long enough to take off the presuppositions of this concept of total inability from birth and this concept in, of, of God, you know, choosing some people for hell before they're born and reprobation and this, these double predestination concepts. And let's reapproach Romans 9 without those presuppositions and instead think about what Paul was addressing with regard to the hardening of Israel and what God was accomplishing through judicially blinding a rebellious nation of, of self-righteous people in their rebellion so as to bring redemption to the Gentile nations. Let's let's re-examine this passage in that context and mm-hmm. see if you don't see the duck. And at least if you can see the duck and the rabbit, then you're qualified to be able to decide which one Paul was actually trying to describe. Um, right. and, and that's the problem is that many people aren't at the level of maturity, or at least maybe the, the uh, an, at least an open enough mind to even consider that Paul could be meaning something different than what I was originally taught about this passage, because sometimes we just get locked in the way we see something, and we just think that anybody else that sees it differently than we do must be either immoral. Um, so that that's when it becomes the ad hominems, you know, and they attack the messenger. Yeah. Instead of addressing the content, they attack the messenger must be bad. He must be nefarious. He must not really believe the Bible. He doesn't really love Jesus and all these other nefarious kinds of accusations. Or he's just not serious about exegesis. He's just not very, he's just not doing proper exegesis. He just doesn't mm-hmm. know how to interpret the scripture like we interpret scripture. And uh, and so he's not do, uh, you know, providing the proper model of exegesis or the, uh, you know, whatever, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and, and so they'll just dismiss any other argument outside of their echo chamber and not even entertain it. 
And, and my goal a lot of times on the program is just to get people to the point where they can say, I see both the duck and the rabbit now. I, I get what you're saying. It's not so far-fetched as I thought it was beforehand now that I understand where you're coming from. Right. Um, and that can happen from both sides, by the way. There's a lot of non-Calvinists who've never seen the Calvinistic interpretation. And sometimes helping them to see why a Calvinist has come to that conclusion helps you at least not to be so angry with them uh, and, and to realize that you know there's good reasons for why they've come to that interpretation. And I don't have to think they're a nefarious, sneaky snake. Uh, they may just be wrong. They may just have a wrong right. interpretation, and that's all there is to it. They're, they're not nefarious, in other words. And I, th I think that's true of so many different theological positions where there are differing yes. views. I think it's really critical for people to be able to, and it's, you know, you have the ability or the, the capacity to do this at varying stages of your development, right? So, you know, it's it's common for children to to draw from stereotypes because that's how they see the world is in a, is in a binary. Um, right. But as you get older and you grow and you mature and you have a better handling of God's word, I think it's really important for us to begin to unpack uh, other perspectives. Um, and man, sometimes your view might change. And, and then sometimes you're, uh, you, you might be even more justified in the position that you've held to, uh, you know, traditionally. And so you're Absolutely. right. I think it's really important for us to concede that there are there are differing views um, and that there are illegitimate and legitimate ways of, of deriving those particular views. You know, one of the things you mentioned was Romans chapter, uh, chapters 9 through 11. I think you were hinting at that there. And I think one of the, the, the biggest things about misinterpreting that passage is failing to determine the context of the dialogue of, of Paul as he's, as he's moving through the letter, how sure. he kind of goes and, and he shifts to camp out on, on Hebrews and, 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 and the Jewish people and addressing the nation of Israel. And so I think that's a great example of how, how context begins to mm -hmm. uh, affect the way in which people see the, wor the word. And, uh, and, and these issues of context are often, even with your book, you know, The Potter's Promise, so much of that, or, or the issue of, uh, you know, uh, the Pharaoh's heart. Uh, mm -hmm. these topics have so much to do with context. Maybe you could speak into that and talk about how context is so important for us to, to properly interpret. Yeah, well, since you mentioned Pharaoh, I'll, I'll start with that. There's a lot of foreshadowing, obviously, in the Exodus event and, and redemption of humanity. The whole Passover event is, is foreshadowing of the true Passover, who is Christ. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the wiping the blood on the doorposts, there's a lot of symbolism there. Um, the the this enslavement of the uh, uh, the Egyptians over the Israelites um, that's all foreshadowing of so many things and, and many preachers both Calvinist and non-Calvinist alike uh, to sh teach off that when they're in Exodus and show that foreshadowing because it's just so clear and and Paul plays on that too and so Pharaoh is a good example of this because he's someone who is hardened in order to bring about the first Passover. Now, what does that mean? For us, what that means is that God blinded him in his already rebellious state. He didn't. He wasn't born in that state without any control over it. Mm -hmm. God, now knowing his heart, knowing the condition of his heart, blinds him from the truth that the plagues would have revealed. And the reason he does this, according to the scriptures, I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed. And if anybody understands the plagues, each one of those plagues actually represents one of the false gods of Egypt. 
And mm. so by showing each one of those plagues, he's actually demonstrating that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is more powerful than all your false little g gods. Um, and th- each one of those plagues is meant to and purposed to demonstrate God's power over the false gods. And so it serves God's purpose of redemption and the Passover to blind Pharaoh from the truth so that he continues to hold the Israelites as slaves. So this is nothing about God creating somebody for damnation, um, causing them to be sinful. God is holy. He doesn't even tempt men to sin. Right. Pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world, 1 John 2, 16 says. So there, you can't contradict uh, didactic, clear scriptures mm-hmm. by saying that God somehow is causing, um, directly causing Pharaoh to be evil. No, he's just blinding him from the truth. An analogy I've used with youth is to say, okay, the the police officer sets the police um, the the speed limit, and so he's setting the law and he's and he's uh, he's upholding the law. But if that police officer hides his presence so that speeders continue to speed, does that mean he's causing them to speed? No, he's hiding the truth of his presence from them so that they will continue to do what they already want to do. Well, Pharaoh already wanted to enslave the the Israelites. He, he, mm-hmm. he wasn't being made by God to do that. God was simply hiding the presence, his his power and his presence from Pharaoh in those plagues. Well, here's what the, the, the parallel comes in. This is the foreshadowing. Who is like Pharaoh in the New Testament Passover? Who's being hardened? Who is already in a condition of being rebellious? and thinking they have it all figured out, and thinking they're the ones in charge, and thinking they they know everything. It's the mm-hmm. Israelites themselves, ironically. The very people who are rescued mm-hmm. from Pharaoh now are acting like Pharaoh. They are they are uh, self-deceived because of their self-righteousness. They think they they are their own savior, in a sense, because of their good deeds. Right. They, they, they're earning it through works, through striving after the law. And because of this, God is blinding them, giving them over, to their own selfish and self-righteous way of thinking, blinding them from the truth that Christ is revealing. So they can't see Christ as their own Messiah because of their rebellion. And God is sealing them over, blinding them in that condition to bring about the Passover, the crucifixion. So these Israelites who are crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. These are people who are the elect of God <laughs> throughout the old. That's what their nickname mm-hmm. is, the elect yeah. of God. And God is actually using them in their rebellion to bring about the redemption. And that is the interlocutor in Romans 9 who is saying, why are you to blame me then? If my right. crying out crucify him, if my rebellion actually brought about the crucifixion, then why would you blame me? Mm-hmm. And Paul is saying, who are you, O Israelite, who is rebellious and hardened to question the God of Israel, if he wants to take a hardened lump of clay and mold it and use it for a vessel of dishonor, just like I did in Jeremiah 18, because that's exactly what I told you I would do as the potter who continues to rebel against me, that I would use you for ignoble purposes. But if you cleanse yourself from unrighteousness, as he says in 2 Timothy 2.20, then I will use you for noble or honorable use. But because you continue to rebel, because you continue to, to not listen to my voice, I am using you for an ignoble purpose. So this is not an arbitrary choice of God that he's making certain people from birth to be rebellious. It is about God's strategic plan to bring about redemption for the nations of the world through an already self-hardened, rebellious group of Israelites. And when you understand that, the whole context of Romans 9 through 11 flows perfectly 
It absolutely makes perfect sense with the grace and the provision of God throughout the rest of the book of Romans. Mm -hmm. There's not all this esoteric baggage of double predestination and this unfairness, this seeming arbitrarily, you know, God choosing people for damnation before they're ever born um, and all these kinds of concepts. It's just, it all just disappears. And we don't have any of those problems, just like the first 400 years of the Christian church and pretty much all of Eastern Orthodoxy doesn't have this debate because they don't have the influence of Augustine and the influence of the deterministic reading of Romans 9 right. plaguing them. And that's what right. we're trying to help people to see, that there's a better way to understand this passage than the way the Calvinists have interpreted it. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic explanation of what's happening there. And I think it's really important for people to understand that an offer was being made to the Jewish people. Uh, you know, in God's foreknowledge, he recognized that they would refuse it and that he would have to reach the Gentiles another way, that he was going to provide an, another route. But but even through Acts, you see repeatedly the offer continuing to be made to the Jewish people, and it was by their free will decision as a people group to refuse the message of the Messiah that resulted in what we now read in Romans chapter 9, this declaration that Paul's making. It is actually, that is the byproduct of a people who had, by choice, hardened their hearts. And so right. by that are being blinded because ultimately it will be, it will be, it will produce uh, what we often around here refer to as the parenthetical Gentile church age, uh, and then ultimately culminate with the Jews being redeemed again. It'll be a part of God's ultimate plan. But it was a free will decision that the nation of Israel had to make, uh, and then God, in His foreknowledge, knew that there would have to be a blinding because of the refusal. Yeah. Well, and Romans Romans eleven really gets into that when it talks about um, the elect, and then it says the rest were hardened. Well, it, the elect are the ones who refused to bow and eat a bell. In other words, they were believers. So they weren't elect mm -hmm. arbitrarily. They were elect because of their faith. Um, right. So they refused to bow and eat a bell. That's why they're refer, referred to as the remnant that are chosen by God's grace. So God, through grace, is going to use believers to bring about his purposes and his plan. And it may be a, be a small number, a remnant, but it is still uh, God's purpose and plan to be carried out through believers. Uh, and then it goes, the rest were hardened. But then it goes on to talk about the rest who were hardened. And he says, have they stumbled beyond recovery? By no means. And he even says, I hope that my ministry to the Gentiles will provoke them to envy. Yes. So that they too will leave their unbelief and be grafted back in. So even the rest who are hardened in Paul's theology can still be redeemed. How yes. could they possibly be the reprobates in the mind of Paul if they could be redeemed? And if he even hopes that their ministry will provoke their wills to envy so that they will see the error of their ways. How in the world can that be the reprobate within the Calvinistic reading? And so there's so many verses like that when you really begin to study it. The, the, there are certain verses that seem to really fit Calvinism well, taken out of their context. But when you read it in the whole of the context and the flow of Paul's argument, it, it doesn't fit at all. Yeah, I, I think maybe at some point you and I could sit down and have another conversation about replacement theology um, and you know the, the connection between that and, and Calvinism. Uh, but you did mention a word, uh, you mentioned the word elect, which is obviously a, a word that, that gets banded around uh, a lot. Um, and we don't need to, you know, maybe necessarily go in depth on the word itself, but it does point to this idea that that one of the common traits that I see uh, in, in Calvinism is a, desi a desire to kind of reconceptualize biblical terms, uh, redefine them in a way that, that you know, props up or supports the presupposition that they're coming to the text with. And, and I think election or the elect is one of those words that's kind of a hot button mm -hmm. word 
uh, that gets used and is often misunderstood. And I think going back to this idea of the of the Calvinist hermeneutic, what what differentiates it, or what are some of the and and this is actually true for 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 any I guess you know whether we're talking about Pentecostalism and, and charismatic theology, or we're talking about this topic. Obviously, mm -hmm. it always comes back to context and the use of words. Right. But maybe explain to us how how Calvinism uh, our Calvinists tend to do that. Yeah, once you get, like I said, the, the, the lenses of Calvinism on, you've been taught that election is about God choosing certain individuals before they're born to cause them through an irresistible working of grace to become believers. Once you kind of get that in your mind, then anytime you see the word elect or election, you automatically read that concept into that word and you think it's kind of the confirmation bias is kind of what it's what, it, what it's doing there, it's like, oh, look, there's Calvinism again. There's Calvinism again. But what you're doing is assuming that the word elect or election is should be interpreted in the way the Calvinists have interpreted it. And what we're saying, again, take off the lenses, back away for a second, and just realize that there's not all this uh, theological weight on that word in the first century. It just means the word choice or the chosen one, the chosen. Mm -hmm. And you've got to ask who is being chosen for what? Like the whole Jacob and Esau. Jacob I chose, which is Jacob I loved. It's an idiomatic way of saying I chose one over the other. Just like when it, the, when Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, more than me, you can't be my disciple. He's not saying you literally have to hate your parents, obviously, because right. that would contradict so many other texts, right? He's saying you choose me over them. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And so I've chosen Jacob over Esau. For what? I'm going to save one of them regardless of what they say and do, because I'm going to cause them to be a believer and I'm going to damn the other child before he's ever born. He's going to hell. He can't help it. Does that sit well no. with anybody with the character of who God is and what Christ? No, he's right. I've chosen Jacob and the nation of Israel, which Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, as many of you know, and they're mm -hmm. often referred to there as their figurehead in those times. That's how you refer to a nation by their, their figurehead, the, the, the head of their household. And so right. Israel, I have chosen the Edomites, I have not chosen. And the the quote there is 1,500 years apart. There's two nations in your womb. Talk about Rebecca with two sons. I've chosen one over the other. And then Malachi, quote from Malachi, Jacob, I loved. Israel, I loved. Edomites, I hated. And this is in the context of the Edomites having just hacked the Israelites. Um, and so it wasn't just this arbitrary reason that he's declaring his hatred over the Edomites. In fact, you have scriptures out of Deuteronomy that says, do not hate the Edomites for they are your brother. You know, God's not a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not going to tell them not to hate him when he hates them secretly. Uh, he actually protects the Edomites. He says to go around their land, that he has blessed them. Um, it's only after they attack that this, this declaration of hatred comes on them. All these kinds of things have to be noted and understood in the context of what Paul's talking about. So, yes, the nation of Israel was chosen not for effectual salvation. The, the nation of Israel, Jacob, was chosen to be the lineage through which the blessing would come. And mm -hmm. so the Messiah would come through Israel, not the Edomites and not the other nations of the world. They were the means by which the promises would come to fruition. And so right. you've got to ask yourself, who is being chosen for what? Um, and so when, when you understand that, then you can understand Paul's purpose in talking about God's promise not failing. Just because it looks like all the Israelites are, are not believing in their Messiah doesn't mean that God's promise is going to fail because God's promise is actually going to be accomplished through their rebellion and unbelief, mm -hmm. as we see mm -hmm. with uh, the Passover that we already talked about with uh, the God using them in their blindedness, in their rebellion to bring about the Passover, the for redemption for all people. 
Right. Which, by the way, is the original promise in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, I've yeah. chosen you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the yes. earth. So any doctrine of election that has God choosing a nation or individuals to the neglect of all other nations and individuals, that's not a biblical doctrine of election. Because the biblical doctrine of election, as we first see it introduced in, in Genesis 12, is I have chosen you to be a blessing to all the other nations and the families of the earth. And so yep. God choosing people, he's choosing messengers to be a blessing to other people. He's not choosing messengers to the neglect of other people. And that's why Calvinism have, have taken verses out of their context to say, look, he chose Paul to the neglect of someone else he didn't choose. And they're, therefore, they're damned to hell and Paul's destined mm. for heaven. No, he chose Paul to be a blessing to the peoples of the earth by bringing them a message. And so the choice of God to be a blessing, to, be, to, to fulfill the promise, is for the world's good, not to right. the neglect of or to uh, the reprobation of, to use a Calvinistic term, everybody else. And that right. it's just a, it's again it's a concept shift. It's the whole the whole uh, duck and rabbit thing. Once once that shift takes place in your brain, you go, "Oh, okay, I see that he's electing people. He's electing the nation of Israel and certain people from Israel." So there is individuals involved, but he's choosing them to be a blessing to all the other nations and other right. individuals. He's not choosing them to the neglect of everybody else. Which points to even the way the 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 word uh predestination for instance, is used Absolutely. in the in the New Testament, especially as it regards believers, and we're talking about the epistles, when the word predestined is used, it's always a, here are the ways in which I've predetermined that upon salvation, I will use you to be a blessing or I will bless you. The, here, right. I, I have predetermined, I have predestined you to have all to have this inheritance to to have these blessings to be gifted in this way because again he wants the church to be a light to the world as well and so the things yep. that are predetermined or the things that are are chosen are chosen to the benefit of not just us but to to all of mankind who needs to hear the truth of Jesus Christ right well even the word itself explains it i mean destination pre break up those two words a, a destination has been decided beforehand for who People just arbitrarily pick for no apparent reason. I've just decided the destination for you before you were ever born. And I actually created you for that destination. Or could he possibly be saying a destination has been predecided for whoever is in Christ Jesus right. through faith? Yeah, and the way good. I've illustrated that before is to say, you know, if if you imagined a town and God put this huge fortress right in the middle of the town, and He says a storm is coming, anyone inside this fortress will live. It has been predecided, it has been predestined that if you're in that fortress, you will live. And it's been predestined that whoever's outside that fortress will surely perish. The storm comes, everybody outside the, the fortress perishes, everybody inside the fortress lives. Could you rightly say after the fact, everybody inside that fortress was predestined to live. Everybody outside that fortress was predestined to die. Yes, you could say that exactly. They were predestined to live and those were predestined to die. But that it has nothing to do with God determining who would and would not choose to go into the fortress. That's right. He's given us that responsibility. And Christ yeah. is our fortress. And so what what uh, what Ephesians 1 is talking about is that those who are in Christ, that's why he says chosen us in him. If you're in Christ, the fortress, 
God is destined before the foundation of the world that you will have these spiritual blessings. You will be saved. You will be adopted. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will be made holy and blameless, which is sanctification. These are the destinations that God has decided beforehand. But you're responsible to get into the fortress, into Christ. Right. And how do you do that? Yeah. By believing. If you look at verse 13, that's exactly what he says. When they heard the message of truth and when they believed, they were marked in him. They weren't marked in him before the foundation of the world. They were marked in him when they heard the truth and when they believed. And so that's our responsibility. And any in any theology that ultimately abrogates the responsibility to believe and put your faith in Christ over to somebody else, namely God, is is not a biblical theology because it's doing it's giving God the responsibility that God has given to man. Mm-hmm. And that's why we push back so vehemently with our Calvinist friends is to say you're you're what even maybe unwittingly, you're giving mankind a perfect excuse for their unbelief because you're ultimately saying it's really not their responsibility to believe. It's right, God's right. responsibility to make them believe. It's God's responsibility to put them into the fortress. And we're saying, mm-hmm. no, no, you've got to sound the warning. It's their responsibility to get into the fortress. And if they don't, they will perish. And that's why we've got to be passionate about calling them and using good apologetic methodology and good evangelistic fervor to say, get into the fortress or you will perish. That's mm-hmm. not... God's responsibility, that's yours. That's yeah. why, I think that's why it's so significant of a, of a discussion. Leighton, uh, that, that's really good. I, I appreciate what you've shared. Uh, now we're going to do another episode together. So I want to save some of the goodness for, for, the, for the second segment. But before we go, will you just take a minute just to explain to us uh, the books that you have? I've got them right sure. here. Um, you might be able to flash them up there as well. Yeah, so got, got this, this is the, the first book. I, I believe this was the first one that you wrote, right? The, yes, uh, the yeah. Potter's Promise. Yes, the and Potter's then we, Promise. We are, yeah, go ahead. Maybe explain that to yeah. us and then tell us about God's provision for all. Sure, yeah. The, uh, the Potter's Promise is really my journey in and out of Calvinism and the reasons, uh, both theological, some philosophical uh, explanations as to why I believe what I believe now. Uh, some of the, the process that I kind of went through to, to come to my conclusions, some of the misnomers and misunderstanding I had uh, about uh, theology in general back when I was a Calvinist and why, you know, I even put in there, not, not every Calvinist has the same experience I do and not every Calvinist, uh, you know, believes like I believed when I was a Calvinist and, not, and I'm not claiming that. This is my journey. And so uh, I, I spend a good portion of the book, however, on more of the exegetical commentary of Romans 9, especially I touch on uh, John 6 and Ephesians 1 as well, but just kind of walking through from a from a provisionist perspective to say this is what we believe about these often used proof texts for Calvinism to help people mm-hmm. to see much what we talked about today is, is in the bulk of the content of the book. And then um, God's provision of all doesn't even mention Calvinism. It's more of a positive presentation of uh, God's provision for all, that he is demonstrably good. Uh, we don't just say God's good because we have to uh, for mm-hmm. fear of his you know, wrath. We say God's good because he demonstrates how good he is, and he demonstrates it through the cross. Um, and so uh, it, it's kind of that focus on uh, you know, God, uh, God uh, becoming the sacrifice for the sins of the world, not sacrificing the world for himself and for his glory, but sacrificing himself for the sake of undeserving humanity. And that's what glorifies him as, as being good. And so it, it's touching on sociological issues, but it's not doing so in a polemic against Calvinism. It's doing it more from a positive perspective of here's why we as provisionists are provisionists and why we believe mm-hmm. what we believe about the goodness of God and his character. Yeah. 
Yeah, both books, you know, for our listeners, I both highly recommend them. They're, they're, they're not difficult to read. You know, so many theology books you pick up and, and you've got to, uh, you, you know, you've got to already have a background in some theology before you can, you know, there's some of the books on Calvinism, like Lawrence Vance's book is like huge, right? It's very yeah. thorough. Yeah. Uh, but these are books that I think anybody can pick up. And in terms that are difficult, you do a really good job of defining for people as well. So I, I appreciate the way that you've written these books. And so thank you for that, Leighton. And, uh, and I highly recommend people pick those up. So um, uh, uh, we'll close out this interview. But uh, again, we want to invite people to come back and join us again for the other for other ep- another episode where we, we break down Tulip a little bit more in depth in certain areas. But Leighton, thank you so much for joining with, uh, with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. Uh, we hope it was beneficial for you. Uh, we want to encourage you that, that if this topic is really interesting to you and that uh, th- this is something you want to learn more about, we, we highly recommend you visit uh, Soteriology 101. It's a, it's a fantastic podcast. The resources on the YouTube page, uh, the YouTube channel, are also really good. And so it's a great place to learn and, and learn more about uh, Calvinism and a defense of grace through faith. But uh, we also want to invite you to visit lfbi.org. And if you know that you need to grow in your knowledge of God's Word and, uh, and, and you want to learn more about theology and about what God's words and, and His doctrines say about your life and, and how you ought to minister or even just understand His Word, visit lfbi.org and, and please consider signing up for classes. Uh, the spring semester is coming up very shortly. Our classes are already posted. And so if you have any interest in joining us next semester, we ask that you visit the course page and learn more about our offerings. But with all that said, we love you. We're grateful for you. We hope today was edifying and we are looking forward to spending more time with you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.